And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we bridge the gap in common understanding between digital technology, media, and culture. I'm Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is mimeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. How did Covington High School student Nick Sandman's vilification by mainstream media outlets help to create a narrative that allowed for the glorification of Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse? How can we understand historical memes and their context in perpetuating an extremist ideology? And what role does Facebook play in it? What are ways for us to connect over shared human values when we're so deeply siloed into our digital communities? Jamie and I took some time earlier this week to discuss three historical memes that help to frame our current moment and strategies for us to connect with each other. The Digital Void podcast is available on all streaming platforms. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and follow us on Spotify. For more information on upcoming workshops and to view our podcast archives, visit us at digitalvoid.media. I saw a meme that was glorifying Kyle Rittenhouse on Instagram, and I am really confused. I think it's really easy to be confused about this right now. I think this is genuinely one of the most confusing times in my research history that I've ever had, and I've studied this for like ever. Kyle Rittenhouse, the subject of this, is quite an interesting character as a mimetic figure and a new far-right trope of heroism. And I think it's important that we talk about it because I think there are ways to understand how we got to now and ways in which we've seen this before because everything's kind of a loop right now. But I think it's important for us to discuss it in terms of like public safety, mimetic understandings, and community values. I think if we get it that way, we could kind of see what brought us here because I, I think this is a dangerous moment. Why a meme? Why is he being labeled as a patriot? How did we arrive at this point? I think this is one of the most interesting moments inside of one of these things. Years ago, I was invited. So I'm going to use a couple personal stories here because I do have between like being a former professor or a current professor and like being in touch with like Gen Z and millennials, I get a good sense of a wide variety of voices that kind of tell me where they get their source information from. So, and I also have a fair amount of conservative friends that kind of share with me their information or the inside track of where these flows come from. In the very recent past, and I'm talking like within the last two months, I've seen a very rapid uptick of far-right meme pages, especially locative. And what I mean by that is that recently I've seen these, I think you know, but all small towns or basically every town in the U.S. has a Facebook page. These closed groups, where do I recycle things? How do I do this? What is the number for the tree guy? You know, it's all these very helpful sites, but they're private. And in that privacy gives this sort of sovereignty from Facebook as a platform as a whole. And what it does is also allows users to kind of spin off extra groups, like the way we would spin off an extra server and something. And they could then create these very specific meme pages. And we're going to use the term meme liberally here. Meme being like ideology rather than graphic images. It's more of like the the overall encompassing world of Facebook memes, not just minion memes that have funny phrases on them, but like actual thought process that is developed inside of these spaces, you know? So it's the difference between 
actually speaking about an idea or repeating an idea versus what we believe to be a graphical meme of a minion. Yeah. So the graphical meme of a minion or like any meme that is graphically based is a carrier for an ideology. So that's all it is, as we've talked about on basically all of our digital void things and all my research, that memes themselves are just reductionist media to carry a simplified theme that promotes some sort of energy. And that energy is promoted to encourage civic action or discourage civic action or to encourage some sort of extra sharing. So it feels like collectivism or activism. So it basically can travel an idea rapidly. It's a package. A meme is a kind of like an extension like .mov or .mp4, but it's like a visual package for it. But these closed communities on Facebook that are spreading particular ideologies or memes, as we're saying, they're doing something far more insidious when it comes to how they are branding Kyle Rittenhouse. That is right. Yeah. So they're doing something I think I haven't seen ever in this context, because what they've done is they've taken the ideology and put it on a human. And it does come from a long lineage of right-wing memes that have glorified violence. Jared Holt from Right Wing Watch wrote a, a great article about Kyle Rittenhouse and how he's become part of the right-wing martyr machine. It's kind of like this very interesting methodology of doing that. But Rittenhouse, like previous figures who we'll talk about, embodies exactly what the memes of the violent far right have wanted. And so it is interesting to see how he transpired from a no-name kid, literally no one has heard the name before, to reverse engineering his pathway to glorified hero of violence. And it, it happened very rapidly, and it became real very quickly. So there are three really distinct memes that glorify violence that have happened in the last few years. If you might remember um, base stickman, the term based, uh, which means it doesn't give a shit or like careless or just just basically vacuous of any type of real moral authority. But this base stickman was this pro anti-protester. He showed up at protest fully armed with gear and had a stick that was a flagpole. And the reason why he was carrying this stick with a flagpole is you aren't allowed to bring weapons to some of these protests. But if you bring a flag, you can carry a stick. And so he was beating protesters with this stick. And so he became a meme. And the based, when I use the term based, the memes usually illuminate the eyes in either red or white. They're glorifying that intense power inside their minds because they're based. They don't give a shit. They're running simply on like the way that the term based would come from, which is pure energy or pure whatever it is. Then there is the even more insidious and horrific meme, the helicopter meme, which is Pinochet's meme. So Pinochet, a dictator, when he had anti-government protesters, he would literally put them on helicopters and throw them out of flying helicopters. This is a real thing that happened in history. And it's an extremely violent authoritarian tactic that is glorified by the far right because it's one of those like almost neo-fascist types of approaches, which is like you're either with them or you're a terrorist. There's not really a gray area. It's just a binary. And the, that Pinochet meme was like, a meme like you could just google like helicopter meme and you're going to see like stick figures being tossed out of helicopters then the most insidious which we've talked about on our meme literacy things is the snowplow meme or the plow meme or the protesters being run over by cars meme which is glorification of cars or trucks plowing through protesters in 2017 at the unite the right rally uh when heather hayer was murdered by a vehicle that meme kind of was like became too real too quick. And so that kind of toned down. People were like, oh, well, shit, a real murder actually did happen. So now the memes are actually 
manifesting as real life scenarios. And at that point, there's actual liability involved with some of these meme pages. Since then, of course, there's been a large scale attempt, and I'm, that's in capital letters, attempt at removing a lot of these pages to very little avail. So these spaces online are basically energy spots for these types of mimetic uh, approaches. Now, those three memes serving as the best examples, you said earlier that it's about what the alt-right wants. What exactly does the alt-right want here? Wow, that is a good question. So that, I think, is what we should focus on for the rest of this thing, which is what is going on underneath this? Because to be honest, it's confusing. And I feel like when you're listening to this or when you're at home and you're coming across this type of information, you will feel confused. Because I think a lot of this does not make sense in any easy to speak about manner. And I think that's also by design, but I think we can talk about it by talking about it in the more wide view of these things. Like, How did we get to Kyle Rittenhouse in this position when you're confused by even the, the steps that it takes to get here? So let's talk about existentialism. <laughs> now, you'll be confused right off the bat by saying uh, existentialism or hearing existentialism, because when you hear that, it seems like an academic term and you and I get that, but like, the person listening at home is like, well, all right, I've heard that term and that's cool, but I don't know what that is. Uh, existentialism is a philosophy and it is a thought process of the pondering or consideration of your existence, of your mortality, of your life. But it also has been used more liberally, which we're going to do in like this term of like what's going to be lost. And that I think is a good framing for this is what's, what is being lost? What is the fear? What's going on that's causing this anxiety? So let's instead of use existentialism, use anxiety. So what what anxiety is happening? <laughs> um, and so we're going to go through a couple of examples in this. If you watched the RNC last week, which if you did, good for you. Um, if you did, you would have noticed two very interesting people who spoke at the RNC. And that was Nick Sandman speaking about being wronged by the media. And then you have the McCloskeys, who are the now infamous people who are the gun-wielding anti-protesters, who are currently charged <laughs> with uh, gun safety felonies because uh, they had their finger on the trigger. And that's actually an, an attempt at assault. And so the fact that they were at the RNC is pretty important here, okay? Because they they represent not the McCloskeys and Nick Sandman, but they actually represent anxiety. And what, what type of anxiety? Grievance. <laughs> and so grievance is really the anxiety underneath this all. And so here we go. A grievance is an example of a fear that's been taken into real space. A grievance would be like, consistently, your garbage man stops picking up your garbage, but picks up the neighbor's garbage. So first, it's a grievance. Oh, man, what the heck? Why are they skipping me? What, what am I doing wrong? So that creates the gap of understanding. Once you have that, you form an anxiety. What am I doing differently? Are they holding something at me? Is it personal? Whether or not it's personal or not, that fear manifests and that grievance becomes uh, an anxiety that creates action. And so that action is in result of, I'm going to call the mayor. I'm going to call the company. I'm going to talk to my neighbors. But one way or another, that stressor starts changing the way you interact in everyday life. So that grievance all of a sudden manifests as anxiety and then all of a sudden results in direct action. Now, that later, sometimes a very easy explanation comes out. Oh, we messed up. We thought you stopped paying your bill. If it's a private town, they, they pick up by that. Oh, we thought this. Oh, we lost your paperwork. Oh, we didn't know if that garbage can worked. So on and so forth, it could be easy. Very rarely are grievances something that's personal, but it doesn't help 
that we've been trained as consumers on social media or everything to assume a personal interaction. This happens to all of us. This happens to me. This happens to you. It happens to me all the time. Like literally like anytime I'm literally not talking to somebody for a few weeks, I'm like, are they mad at me? And, and I think that's a, that's a grievance. And that's like something that forms an anxiety that could only be solved by an answer. In other words, almost everything has an explanation, but very few things have an answer. And we have to be okay with that gap in between the explanation and the answer. And it's not everything makes sense. Not everything. It's just some things don't. The world is too big and too chaotic. So this is an anxiety. This is a grievance that is different than the commonly cited 2016 fear or anxiety of the economy. This is attached to that. So that's that's a really great question. So the economy is was originally blamed as this. Is like I think it was like a very almost like a trope at a certain point because it was like economic anxiety was the term used. We have economic anxiety. We're nervous about the future of all these things, which is now again I think no matter what one one takeaway from this episode you should know is no matter how much hypocrisy or logical explanation none of this is going to really make sense. Just like I said, it's going to be more in terms of like excuses. Um, but yeah, you're right. It was the economic anxiety push. And seeing Hillary as more of like somebody who's going to create regulations and change the way that we have free market enterprises. And Trump was more of that like businessman. He's going to come in and handle that. But it was coded. I mean, we know that now. I mean, it's, it's been three years, almost four years. And we know now that it's really that economic anxiety was just coded as the way things would change when progress enters your community. So there's that fear. The fear is what you see happening could happen to you. So think about the McCloskeys standing there in their front yard. They've got their guns out. Now, remember, they came out of their house. They came out to a protest that would have gone by their house, but they were nervous because they had already seen damage to buildings. They had seen damage to things around them. And they're thinking, if we don't do something, the whole town's going to go to shit. So the protests that have been going on since George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement have, have heated up this summer have become part of a suburban type of approach. Now, on top of that fear is also the pandemic that's happening at the exact same time and the exodus, quote unquote, exodus from the cities. People are now realizing that cities aren't as important when you have to work from home. So there's been a, a mass exodus of people looking towards the suburbs for housing, for moving out there. But remember these terms because Trump then amplifies it and says he's going to, quote, save the suburbs. That's coded because the term urban has been coded as minority into our culture because, well, because racism. And so the McCloskeys feel as if their fear of urbanites entering this suburban area, which is just, we, we use the term people moving. It's just, that's how things actually operate, is that that becomes that existential fear and then the worst part of this is it expands into this news trope that for some reason has happened is that the rights of property are more valuable than people. And that is how we have the McCloskeys defending their home and facing criminal charges whilst appearing at the RNC before we see Kyle Rittenhouse shoot protesters before he's defended by Tucker Carlson. Right. So the Kyle Rittenhouse example is now one step further, including the McCloskeys. So both Nick Salmon and the McCloskeys end up at the RNC, not just because of their defense or their anxieties, but remember where Nick Sandman comes from. This is really, really important because the boogeyman has to get you. So Nick Sandman is possibly, in my opinion, the biggest radicalizing event of the last four years. If you were on the edge of going from basic 
Republican moving into Trumpianism, that would be the Sandman event, the Coving- what I call the Covington event. That event alone, I think, has changed the way we understand discourse and how we understand conservatism and Trumpism from that moment forward. Nick Sandman is a microcosm of the moment that the media became the bad guy. No matter what, since Trump took office, he's always made the boogeyman of the media, which is just typical playbook of authoritarianism. But if you want to zoom out from that and just be like, all right, maybe not, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He hates the media because the media wants answers. He hates giving answers. He hates giving any type of information. He hates giving anything that will reveal anything about him that he hasn't already told somebody. In other words, he is the media. No one else should get that. There's stories throughout the time when he was at The Apprentice where he would just literally fake the stats of the polls and ratings. He would say it's number one and people like, ah, no, it's fifth. And he's like, no, it's number one. Because he knows if he says the quote, the news has to report it. So you could control the media. So the, mo- the media is the boogeyman. That has to do with what happened with Nick Samman. Because as Andrew Morantz talks about in the, his book, Antisocial, is about this fight over the, the quote, the narrative. The narrative is just another term for the Overton window, uh, but the narrative makes a little bit more sense to explain than the Overton window. The Overton window is the ability to speak without being a complete horrible person. <laughs> I guess way to put it. Uh, the over- political correctness. <laughs> political correctness. That's the term that has been placed on the Overton window is political correctness, but it really is that. So political correctness is the idea that you can't say certain words because it sits outside the Overton window. And the Overton window is what's acceptable in public discourse. Anything that's outside the Overton window is still protected by First Amendment rights. It is. It just is. But it doesn't mean you're not susceptible to uh, reaction. So the First Amendment is limited. Everybody, all of our... The Constitution is a living document, um, as much as people don't want it to be. Um, And usually rights and amendments are changed by lawsuits. And so the First Amendment has two major restrictions on them. There's more. Uh, And the first restriction is a threat to national security, which we often just say it's like you can't yell uh, fire in a theater. You can't put people's lives at risk by your own speech. That's against the First Amendment. The second one is libel versus slander. You are allowed to lie about somebody. You're allowed. But... In, I think it was the Brandeis case early in the 20th century, it basically stated that you could lie, but you have to deal with the consequences. So the Overton window kind of is that line. What is that gray area that's there? Where is that line between saying I could say it and saying it and dealing with consequences? (laughs) And so that line is always being pushed. Now you have to look at this from multiple perspectives. And we have to, because there's no way to frame this right without doing that. I went to uh, Andover, New Hampshire a few weeks ago. And driving through there, I went through Trump country, you know, which is, you can find Trump country pretty much everywhere. It's just part of microcosms of country, just like you find Biden country or Yang country or Hillary country. You can find them wherever you go, uh, but they're sort of like little microcosms. Diverse areas like cities are, aren't like that, you know, like they're just a little less homogenized. Think about it this way. So you're in Trump country, you're in the rural areas outside of Andover, New Hampshire, and you really rarely interact with people of color. You just rarely do it. It's just something that doesn't happen because you either work within your town or you stay there. And this isn't a new story. I mean, there's been books written about this, about grievance. On an earlier episode, we discussed this with Joe Toscano as well. Correct. Yeah. And Joe Toscano has a very good view on this, I think. Think about this. You rarely interact with things outside your worldview. And all of a sudden, 
terms like Black Lives Matter dominate the news. George Floyd dominates the news. All these terms scare you because they're not your terms. They literally don't change your life in any way. It doesn't do anything to you, except potentially you could care about other human beings. That's maybe the only change. But because they're new, they become a threat to your everyday vocabulary. They're like, well, what is this? And then that fear comes from the news. So if your media diet only consists of Fox News or it only cons- only when, remember the term only here is really important because this could apply to both sides or anything. If it's an only situation, your media consumption then is being dictated to you by what people want you to hear. And so when you hear things like vilification of Black Lives Matter, you immediately assume that term that's now part of your life for some reason must be bad. So fear, fear starts setting in. My way of life is changing. Their Overton window is changing. Their vocabulary is growing. In other words, their window is getting bigger. Right, right. So their window is expanding and so is their relationship with the screen itself. That's right. So now here's where the false equivalence comes in. Because what Andrew Morantz talks about is that a leftward-leaning Overton window change, as I mentioned before, makes you potentially care about other human beings more. But like, that's that's what's the biggest downfall that could happen is that maybe you have to be just more willing to incorporate diversity into your schools or your readings. The other side is the Kyle Rittenhouse side, which is a violence against the body itself, and we've talked about this with. Dr. Andre Brock or Dr. Uh, Charlton McElwain. And we've talked about that the body is often the thing that people mistake for an existential issue. Because when we're talking about words, they don't really hurt. They don't change anything, but it does change your comfort level. And it is, that's true. I do agree that comfort is a problem with anxiety. That's, I, that's important. But when it comes to damage or actual physical problems, that's a real thing. Like That's an actual problem. So when Nick Sandman was videotaped. In retrospect, you have to look back and say, you know, the media really screwed that one up. <laughs> and that's, that is exactly what the right says. But they martyred Nick Sandman because the media used a reductionist method of t- storytelling. They made it. MAGA teens harass Native American. And that becomes a story in itself because we have already been given these I- icons of pre-bias. So when we see that, we immediately vilify Nick Sandman and see him as the bad guy. And we immediately, in our heads, because of the way the Overton window has been smoothing, see the Native American as the victim. So that was a, a leftist bias problem there too. Now, expand that out because then the dude from Reason was like, well, this is out of context. If you see the whole two hours, you're going to see that Nick Salmon was de-escalating a situation between Black Zionists and Na- the Native American man came up there as at the same time. It was just a, a mass confusion. When if you do watch that, you could see that it's really a very, very strong attempt at changing the story because the young men in the background behind Nick Sandman wearing MAGA hats as well were doing the Tomahawk movements. They were making fun of the Native American. They weren't good boys, but they're also young teenagers, so they really don't know what they're doing. They should have gotten out of the situation, but they're kids. They didn't know how to get out of the situation. So Jason Wilson writes for The Guardian about this, and I think it's important for us to recognize this because how do you become a martyr? How does that happen? A martyr is typically someone who dies for a cause, You know, someone who is, stands up as like, I mean, what Jesus. I mean, he's the biggest martyr of them all. He, he literally died for everyone. When you have a martyr, it becomes like an icon. And that martyrdom is part of the radicalizing aspect of any subgroup or 
cult or culture, if you martyr somebody, you use a human as your icon of somebody who's been lost for the cause. So Sandman became that because he had a stand-in. He happened to be there at the right place at the right time or wrong place at the wrong time, whichever you want to look at it, that the media was looking for low-hanging fruit because the Kavanaugh thing was still hot in the mines. And this whole thing was basically the media versus Trump and the media being in quotes here because the media is also Tucker Carlson, is also Sean Hannity, is also is Mark Zuckerberg. It's like It's just such a misuse of the term but that allows the boogeyman to have basically destroyed this young man. And so these stories are very popular in conservative circles. Do you remember um, Justine Sacco? She went to Africa on a plane and before she left, she tweeted, I'm going to Africa. I hope I don't get AIDS. And by the time she landed, she was what we the term we use now is canceled, but she was basically destroyed. And so people are like, oh man, they ruined her life because of a stupid tweet. She was just a kid. She didn't know better. Well, uh, cut forward, she's doing really well. I think she works for ICM. <laughs> and I think if you haven't heard, but Nick Sandman is working for uh, Mitch McConnell's campaign now. <laughs> so the, the recovery isn't really martyrdom, so to speak. But I do want to go over like the three things that the far right does to convert the narrative. And then, again, this all leads back to Rittenhouse. It does. Like I know it sounds like a long loopy around, but to understand how Rittenhouse becomes a based meme and becomes a, a hero or a martyr of the far right, even though Rittenhouse allegedly murdered two people, is kind of really out there. Like that is, it's really, you got to do a quick, I got to do a bit of a reach. We got to see how you got there. So one, Jason Wilson says there's three steps. One, reframe the debate. So whoever whoever owns the story owns the narrative. So when we're talking about Andrew Morantz's narrative, you have to get there first. The right has become extremely good at this. We've talked about this with several of our guests, that the fact that the news is so, sort of more liberal or liberal-oriented, and that's for a reason. People forget that the news is liberal because it's meant for a general audience. And statistically, there's just more liberals in the United States. It's that's it's just the silent majority is a myth, but it's a, it's a, it works because they vote. The United States does not have of good voting history, not even 60% of everyone who's registered to vote votes. So if everybody voted, it would be a fairly progressive country. It's just voter turnout's low. When the mainstream media or the corporate media need money, they're going to make general television. So they made it get towards the general audience, which is the people that's going to watch, which happen to be liberal. So that means the media itself has become more structurally left. So the right has taken to the internet since 2013, 2014, and they've really made the narrative of the web their own. So they really know how to grab stories and convert them. They're very good at it. That's why for a while, the right, especially during the Trump election, the right was far better at memes. You know, it was just, it was, it was a thing. And you see that anger emerge in incidents like Gamergate. Yeah. I think it's Gamergate and Milo Yiannopoulos kind of really started this, this turn. I think you're absolutely right. I think Gamergate was kind of like the first tool set. And then they just worked to make that work better and better each time. I think that's 100% right. Two, pick the narrative. So it doesn't matter that the teenagers are shitty to the Native American. In other words, what matters then is that it was reframed almost immediately. The teens were justified because they acted in response to a larger situation that the media cropped out. So again, they're picking the part of the story <laughs> that makes sense to them, but not the story. Okay. And then three, the usual focus on other extremes. We call this whataboutism. 
And so you probably hear this all the time and and your friends may hear this and you might hear this like literally as a comeback almost all the time. But what about ism is like when you say something that went on that was terrible and they go, but what about, and you're like, oh, it's exhausting. It's it's literally the, but her emails meme. Mm-hmm. That, wow. Yeah. That's a really good point. That is the best what about ism that exists because that dominated not just digital spaces, but the New York Times and all mainstream media were basically butter emails. And that's, again, the false equivalency because a server is not equivalent to jailing children. You know, it's just, they're, they're just not the same. <laughs> Taking ads out against the Central Park Five. Exactly. These things are different. They One's about an incarcerated body. And yes, if her emails truly put us at national security risk, then there should have been something there. But I think how many times have we debunked it at this point? Like just it just didn't close to a half dozen, I believe. Yeah. So at a certain point that whataboutism loses power, but doesn't mean you can't use the tool set of whataboutism. The tool set is diversion. You divert, you move. To conclude, uh, here's how it's gonna connect to Rittenhouse. If Sandman was vilified for wearing a MAGA hat, then he's the villain. And if he's the villain for wearing a MAGA hat, then he shouldn't have just done that because he's already been vilified. So he could have done worse. It's double jeopardy. You can't... And and that worse becomes Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. Keep in mind that the the MAGA hat is an important meme too, because the media did latch onto that. But the MAGA hat is not a hat. I I repeat this all the time. Uh, I always say, Sena pa un MAGA hat. Like, it is not a hat. That is not headwear. That is not meant to keep you warm. It's not there to keep the weather out. It is not there to keep the sun away. It is there to make a statement. That is a meme you wear on your head. So that type of thing is already being used as a flag. And so that flag is now targeting. So that targeting becomes like easy bait for anybody who wants low-hanging fruit to tell stories about. The MAGA hat is kind of an identifier. So now it is bait. But yes, you're right. That type of thing, a vilification, double jeopardy, means that maybe Sandman didn't go far enough, you know? Because if he was going to be vilified anyway, then what happens? So... The Rittenhouse story. The protests that have happened in these cities in Portland and then later in Kenosha are icons of the destabilization that Trump warns about. And as we know now, and and this is doesn't like I said, don't it doesn't matter how much hypocrisy or logic you point at this, the chaos is caused by the ideology that comes from Trump. But it's very easy to redeploy that by saying, look at this chaos that's happening in this country. This is because of the protests rather than saying, well, the protests wouldn't actually even happen <laughs> if it wasn't there. It doesn't matter. None of that matters because they are happening and they are occurring. To give you the quick story is we George Floyd was murdered by a police officer who put his knee on his neck for nine minutes and literally murdered him. It's one of the saddest videos I've seen in my entire life because you could literally hear him say that they're killing him and you watch him die on camera. Jacob Blake last week was shot seven times at close range in his car in front of his children. There was no de-escalation at all. It was just close range shooting. And it's just like this perpetuation. Like how many times are we going to watch this story? So the protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin started becoming this very big event. But you have to keep in mind that everything is connected. And if, and if we take something away from this is that nothing exists in a vacuum and all these stories are related. So when there's a protest in one city or another, it's all because of a larger theme that's looking out for a change, not in the narrative, because honestly, it's not about speech. It's a change in how we participate as civilians with one another. Like, it's hard to get that through our heads. This has nothing to do with words. Yeah, there's new words. Sure, we hear them all the time. That's what language does. It literally evolves. But what we're looking for is how do you make people care 
and not kill black people? Like, how, how do you just make that happen? That's It seems simple, but it's very difficult because it's embedded into the structural racism that operates in this country. So militias, 2A personas and militias, basically have taken it upon themselves to be the protectors of property. After the burnings of Target and Wendy's in Portland and other cities, they felt that the police weren't doing enough or maybe the government was doing enough. So the militias kind of organized under the Second Amendment to say, well, we could do it. We'll take care of it. We were speaking earlier about Facebook groups that spread ideology. And in fact, many of these Facebook groups are where the far right organize. There really is no outside. It's become so, what do they call it? An omni omni conspiracy at this point? It's just so big that it kind of encompasses a lot. It's a stressor. So the it's the stress of somebody telling you what to do has become the overall meme. So the groups have become resistance to that. And it's that's, again, another irony because they are literally, I mean, the tables have flipped. They are the resistance and it just doesn't apply the same. But we'll, we'll get into that on another episode. But there was a, a, a call to arms. Basically, they said, uh, let's show up uh, with our arms, go to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and protect things. And so Kyle Rittenhouse, 17 years old, okay, so he's a teenager, he's a kid, uh, holding a, a semi-automatic weapon, which means he has it illegally because he's 17, okay? So that's just a, a federal law. You can't have an assault rifle under the age of 18, and, and he has it. And he travels across state lines from his town in Illinois to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and starts to go and protecting a car dealership with other militia members. And so they're protecting the dealership. Now, the dealership, as well as almost everything else, got kind of wrecked during these protests, but it, could, it was chaos, as we describe it. And as we know already from police violence, police are very stressed out. Uh, you can identify stressors with them, and there's no reason to like, vilify a cop for no reason. You have to understand they're, they're by design put under a lot of stress, and their trigger fingers are ready. It's a very difficult job. I wouldn't do it. It's, it's hard to do public safety. Um, but the training, obviously, the training model has become militarized, and that's the bigger problem. And again, I don't know how many times we have to say this, and I know our audience may not be that wide enough, but we have to remind people that when we say defund the police, it doesn't mean turn off the police. It means maybe defund some of the tactics and redistribute them into public learning or public safety or public training. You know, It doesn't mean turn them off. It just means change the way we t- treat behaviors. And maybe support police with more therapy or some more hands-on training. You know, It's like, geez, these, they're, the wind-up shit is bad. You know, So the craziest part about this is the protests were going nuts and everybody's trigger figures are really close to the trigger. Now, the guns are scary, okay? As a gun owner, I could tell you I'm very scared of weapons. It is, I am gun trained. I have, I will, I would never use my guns if I wasn't. Like I'm just, it's responsible gun ownership. It's responsible weapons management. I don't use them. It is just important to know that that's part of the process of them. I always taught as a child, one bullet equals one life. And I just always thought about it as like, what if I were to lose my sister or my parents? Like I can't, the risk is not worth the reward in any way of using it. And so those types of things have come into certain people's minds and some see weapons as more of a, a deterrent or what they're, or, or a hunting thing or whatever. But human beings' lives are somehow have become to the point of devalued. So protesters became a devalued system. And whether or not that's protected by the First Amendment, again, don't look for logic. You can't because that's just going to hurt your brain. So Rittenhouse, I guess, got scared. Remember, he's 17. And somebody shot a gun into the air, and Rittenhouse responded by shooting that person in the head. 
just killed him. Like, that's it. Now, allegedly killed him because it's a trial. So then was seen, the New York Times did a phenomenal, we'll put this in the show notes, the New York Times did a phenomenal tracing of where Rittenhouse was that night. As he's walking away, he gets on the phone. And who knows who he calls? We'll probably find that out in Discovery. But he then trips. And when he trips, protesters run after him. And protesters are seen attacking him because he literally shot somebody in the head. And in his fear lays off two additional rounds, one that hits the chest of a protest and the other one that shoots an arm of a protester, killing another protester. So two people were killed. Rittenhouse then goes to the police who are at that point retreating or going away. And the protesters are like, he just killed somebody and the police go away. So you have to see that from the point of view of the meme lords of this. They see that as support. That's a visible support. Wow, he did our job. He stopped the protesters. He plowed through them just like they would have in Charlottesville. He did it. He is the based AR shooter. You know, like that's, it's such a weird moment in our human history to see that because instantaneous hero systems, it then becomes codified in mainstream media by Tucker Carlson. Were we really surprised that looting and arson accelerated to murder? How shocked are we that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? Where he said, how, how shocked are we that a 17-year-old did this when, no, when there's no control? That is straight up fear-mongering. I'm sorry, that's no other way to look at that but fear-mongering and the, abil- and the call for more arms in action. So in conclusion of this, <laughs> Rittenhouse becomes a meme because he acts and fulfills the destiny of all previous memes. He's not just the driver that drives through the protesters. He is not just the helicopter pilot that tosses out the protesters. He is not just the base stick man smashing people with the stick. He is all of them all at once. He did it. He showed up at the protest to defend, to shoot, to walk away. He got all the way back to his house. That is the herodom that they were looking for. And now that model becomes memetic. And some of these memes, I can't describe to you how disgusting they are. Uh, Carl Benjamin, who is Sargon of Akkad of YouTube, who's been banned from literally every platform except Parler, is doing memes day after day about how much of a hero Kyle Rittenhouse, what a patriot he is. And this term patriot has now been weaponized to become anti-hero, but like Anti-hero in the very strangest way possible. Anti-hero, anti-establishment, pro-fascist. Anti-boogeyman. Anti-boogeyman. That's it. Yeah, anti-boogeyman. And that boogeyman is the scary part here because they could change that boogeyman whenever they want. It was the, quote, the media, and now it is the protesters. So that is where we're watching this change. So let, let's just talk about a few of these takeaways. What, what's happening? So there's, let's, let's talk about like ways of life. So- how do you talk about this with friends? How do you talk about this with somebody who is? I think one of the easiest entry points is to ask, what is, are you scared? Like, that's a good, I think it's important because I think we're all scared. I think that's, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're able to answer that honestly and with efficacy and care and ask somebody, are you scared? And ask them, listen, don't, you can't just sit there and just be like, ha ha, you're scared. You have to listen. What are you scared of? Why are you scared? What, what's going on? What is, is it, what's happening? And the second follow-up to that, when, they, when you're able to have the conversation about fear, if you can't ask, are you scared? And somebody wants to say, oh, I'm not scared of anything. You can say, what fears do you have? 
what fears are are you fearing? And it, they don't have to be about patriots. They don't have to be about protesters. Fears can be, I'm afraid of not getting a paycheck. I'm afraid of my grandma getting sick. I'm afraid of my dog dying. Like Those fears manifest in weird ways, but being able to talk about them makes us realize that humans, we're all fragile. And if we could share those fears, you could kind of open a conversation. The next step is two follow-ups to, are you scared? Is it a life or death fear? That's a big question. If you could ask somebody if their fears of life or death, you could finally figure out where, the, where your baseline is. Because if you do that, you could kind of get a sense of how where you could share some things. Because if they're afraid of life or death of a protester coming into their yard, then you could find a way of saying, well, I'm also afraid of somebody with an AR coming into my yard. And this way, there's like this common ground. And if that shared ability kind of gets a shared life or death thing, it's there. In most cases, people are not afraid of life or death because that is an extreme. It's an extreme outcome of fear. So most people aren't. So usually the fear is grievance. So you, the second question, if it isn't life or death, is, is it cultural? Is this a cultural fear? Is there something that's changing your way of life? Do you feel like your, your way of life is actually going to be different as a result? That is honestly the best conversation you could have. And it hurts sometimes, but that's the patience you have to have because if you can't breach that thing, you don't have to give away the game. When you're talking about, is it cultural as a question, you're actually asking a question, are you afraid of the way power is shifting? That's the question under, under culture. I mean, I'm a, literally a cultural studies PhD. That's what we study. When you say cultural studies, you say the study of how power shifts, you know? And so, because culture is downstream from power, because that's how we form cultures and what signifies how culture forms and where it goes from there. But asking those questions is actually helping an understandable level of like where we could find some sort of semblance of co-agreement. Earlier, you mentioned anxiety and anxiety about cultural shifts is prevalent amongst even those that may benefit from it. Change is scary. But mm -hmm. when you look at a cultural shift or an anxiety, how do you approach this? How do you say, are you scared that you won't be able to do the things that you like anymore? Or how do you approach that conversation? Sometimes I go about it backwards. That's a really good question. Sometimes to, to get to that question, you have to go into uh, results. <laughs> so oftentimes I've breached these things by because you don't just start with the, are you afraid? Because that often is like reactive. You don't want to ask somebody who's like freaking out. Like, are you afraid? Like, that's just not going to give you a good answer. Um, what you could say is if somebody's coming up to you and being like, well, these protesters are burning down cities, Instead of being like, what are you afraid of? You say, so what are you going to do about it? And ask them personally, not like in like, are you going to go with a gun? You say, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to, let me ask you, do you think, and then use the term we a lot too. Do you think we should write to our council people? Do you think we should run for an office? Do you think we should create policy? Do you think we should create a, a, a club that's not on Facebook? Do you think we should, should talk to the government? That reveals a lot because that also tells you if, the belief in the government even exists. If you know what I mean? Like if there's an anxiety that's so deeply embedded and there's an anti-governmental approach, then that's already a, a good tell of where you have the conversation. You know, if you can't, if there's no belief in government, then it's really hard to have this conversation. So you have to kind of get a sense of like, what's the actual political step? And I'm being, I'm being fairly serious here because I think that's a question that most people don't think about. Civics, is not something on the front of our mind. We see things in platitudes. So when we get fear, we don't think of it as like, well, maybe we should talk to the mayor, or maybe we should talk to some teachers first, or maybe we should talk to the firemen or the police officers. There's people who run your small towns. 
<laughs> they, they are the people that you would probably go to first before accelerating this to a federal level. So that's a good way of entering it. So when people are showing fear, you say, how can we help? How we, as in you and I together, how can we do something about this? And when you do that, they get a sense that, oh, there's an order, there's a bureaucracy. If the, if the person or the subject is like, well, we just burn it all down, well, then you kind of know, <laughs> you kind of you get a sense of where that's all coming from. Because I think whether you're far left or far right, you kind of want to burn the whole thing down anyway. But it's like, the there's no, another question is like, well, what do you replace it with? And oftentimes when you ask that seriously, people will just want to replace it with a system where you kind of agree on who's going to run things. And in order to agree on it, you should get a consensus of people who, I think the goal would be each person gets one say <laughs> and so on and so forth until they recreate democracy. So <laughs> if you can identify the steps that democracy takes to actually function, I think uh, it's a good common ground for people to acknowledge. And then that actually helps you get that. That's when you can get back to the What's your fears? How can we work on those fears? What are the fears that we could do? What are the fears we could change? And what are some we can't? And that I think is really one of the things that will help us find some sort of connection because at this point, and I mean this in the most serious way possible, we have already crossed the threshold. We are already now in the point of everything's being exasperated to extremes. So now what we have to do is identify where we can mitigate those extremes one step at a time and do this virtually <laughs> because safety wise, we have to do this sometimes without seeing it. I think personally, I think that's a big reason this is happening too, is that we're stuck in our echo chambers. I just wrote this piece that I'll be probably publishing very soon that is about um, the echo chambers. And I wrote this sentence. I said, we're embedded in a digital chaos with nowhere to go. The walls of the echo chambers have concretized over the last decade. And most people enjoy the comfort of their own ideas on repeat, like a glitched playlist. It's recreating feudalism to go <laughs> full Mark Stallman. That's right. That's it. Yeah. We did it though. Yay. Yay. Zuckerberg. You did it. <laughs> so, so we're at the end game. So this is it. This is what the end game is before the acceleration. So the end game is feudalism in a digital space. We did it. Congratulations. But now we have to live within it. So now we have to figure out how to navigate throughout it. And if we could do that slowly, change doesn't happen overnight. Just like we didn't get here overnight, we didn't, weren't going to get out of it overnight. But we can get out of it. We'll get out of the box together somehow, some way. Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. I was really glad to have this conversation. This is a very important and devastating topic, but we really need to talk about it. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. You can follow Jamie on Twitter at New and Digital. I'm on Twitter at Josh Chaplin. Make sure to check digitalvoid.media for full show notes and resources for everything we discussed on this episode. You can email us feedback at digivoidmedia at gmail.com. We'll see you next week.